Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we have the story of Luca. Luca was a military working dog that served with the United States Marine Corps from 2006 until 2012. Now, utilizing dogs in warfare is nothing new. That's something countries from around the world have done throughout history. And once again, in the global war on terror, dogs made their mark. And in my opinion, the way they, they really came to the forefront was in their use as IED detection dogs, improvised explosive devices. Now, I'm sure there's more specific terms and, and dogs to describe what that dog is doing, and they're used in a lot of capacities. But what we're going to talk about today really is their use in finding and notifying their handlers of IEDs in the battlefield. The reason that that has been so important in Iraq and Afghanistan, now there have been a couple reports here, but one stated that 60% of American fatalities are caused by IEDs. That's death. 60% of American deaths in Iraq and Afghanistan caused by IEDs. Another report said upwards of 70% of all casualties, that's killed and wounded. Again, IEDs. That's crazy. Think about that. Think about the documentaries and the videos and the stories that you've heard throughout these conflicts. Think of the firefights in Sadr City in 2007. Think about the Korongal Valley in Afghanistan where they're getting getting you know mortars and rockets and small arms fire on a daily basis. Yet it's IEDs. That's the killer. That's the death and destruction on the battlefield. We have to resolve that issue. Now, to kind of set the stage for why dogs have been so important in that effort, I think it's worth talking about IEDs in general for a minute. Now, IEDs, improvised explosive devices, I don't know that there's a better way to describe them. It is an explosive device that's improvised, right? It's, it's jerry-rigged one way or another to do something outside of its original capacity, maybe is the way to say that. And it's pretty understood. Let's, let's start at a real high level. The best way to defeat IEDs on the battlefield is to not have them there in the first place. And you can do that if you have overwhelming or at least a good amount of local support. Think about it. If you if there's an insurgency raging in your town and you support the government and not the insurgents and they come by and say, we'd like to put, or not even tell you, but we're going to put some IEDs on this path that leads around your house or on this intersection that you turn into to get to your home. If you don't support them and you support the government, you're either not going to let them do it, or as soon as they do, you're going to notify somebody to come dig them up and get rid of them. So the easiest way to defeat IEDs is for them not to be there in the first place. We had success in Iraq and Afghanistan in various places throughout both conflicts with that being the case, where locals would show up and report IEDs really throughout the war in, again, various locales throughout the countries. But at a high level, big picture, we never really accomplished that full bore. So inevitably, we pretty quickly find ourselves in a situation where we have to find them is going to be the next best step. If we can't stop them from being put in, we're going to continue to work that effort, continue to try to, to build local support, um, gain local support. But the ID is already in the ground. And until we tip that balance, hopefully at some point, we've still got to find these IEDs because again, they're killing, they're accounting for 60% of all deaths in these conflicts. It's a crazy high number. So looking at IEDs in particular, well, let me, let me step back just, uh, just a moment. There can be an argument made that the use of the IEDs while we're trying to build that rapport with the local population, simply by emplacing these and then 
our reaction, maybe it's going into up armored vehicles or having to be a little more standoffish, or just we can't move around the town as freely as we would like to, because now we're looking out for these IEDs, defeats our long game of trying to win that local support, because now we're on the defensive anytime we're near a road or an intersection or a trail. So it's this mess. The IED war within this war is a mess. It's very, very, it's a very, very challenging portion of these conflicts. Now, if we're looking at IEDs in both Iraq and Afghanistan, they really started with military grade equipment. And why not? Both of those countries had a lot of it laying around um, and it was relatively easily available. It, it was, and, and, you know, a mortar round or an artillery shell is designed to explode. It's designed to do that. It's designed to destroy. So why not take that? And then the, the improvising part is maybe burying it in the road instead of firing the artillery shell. Right. So pros and cons from the enemy side of that, they, uh, these are very, very, uh, effective weapons An artillery shell buried in the ground is pretty devastating. A couple of mortar rounds, um, at an intersection can do some damage. The downside, if you will, is from, you know, if you're an insurgent trying to lay these weapons, they're in relatively short supply, which means at some point they become expensive and hard to get, which means you can't lay a lot of them. If you want to, you know, seed your whole neighborhood, it's going to be hard to do and going to be expensive to do. They're also made out of metal, which, you know, creates some issues when they detonate, of course, for the victim. But if you're looking for the IED, well, now you can use a metal detector. It's a pretty cheap piece of equipment. It's pretty lightweight. And, you know, bombs or artillery rounds or mortars, they're, they're, there's a lot of metal there. They're pretty easy to pick up with a pretty, you know, a pretty baseline metal detector. So there were countermeasures that could be used for that. Now, again, what we're going to see throughout this, you know, this IED war within the larger conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan is kind of a cat and mouse game where both sides are going to be innovating and creating, they're going to adapt on the fly to these changes on both sides. And one of the, one of our enemies adaptations, um, with these, you know, conventional military weapons utilized in IED capacity is they started to shift more towards non-metal materials, plastic. So there'd be a lot more plastic IEDs still can cause a lot of plastic to hold the explosive. So now we're talking a little more homemade, but they also would shift more towards homemade, utilizing fertilizer and things like that, as opposed to military grade equipment, because it was a lot easier to get your hands on. And you kind of blink and the artillery shell mortar around bomb IDs never really went away. But again, if you're trying to protect, you know, a whole neighborhood or a whole block with IEDs and you're using those, um, it's pretty cheap. It's easily available to make them out of you know, fertilizer and plastic bins. So next thing you know, instead of five or six um, IEDs with mortar rounds and artillery shells, you might have 50, 60, 70 plastic IEDs strewn all over your area. So the numbers went up as the cost went down. It's not crazy to think about that, right? Another reason for that is as, as the insurgents started using more of these homemade devices, there was just more room for air. They weren't as reliable as a mortar round that is, again, designed to detonate. So we would see throughout the course of these conflicts, you know, initially it was very few IEDs, tended to be bigger, tended to be more military grade. And then as the conflicts went on, more IEDs, lower grade, because they were just making more and more of them and they were cheaper. Um, but then we started to see some adaptation in, in how they'd be utilized. And when I say that, there's a few different ways to look at IEDs. You know, the, the Oklahoma City 
bombing, the Boston bombing, the Boston Marathon bombing, those are IEDs. We're going to look exclusively at Iraq and Afghanistan here. And I'm going to rule or remove a couple of these just for the sake of the story. And one of those is I'm really going to look at defensive IEDs. So IEDs can be emplaced, emplaced in the ground or in a defensive capacity to be detonated when when Americans or when coalition forces move towards a certain position. In turn, I'm, I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about things like suicide devices, vests, or, or suicide vehicle-borne IEDs. Um, these are a little more in the category of offensive, and there's certainly mitigation techniques, but that's not where the dogs are going to shine, right? If somebody runs into a crowd with an IED you know, or a suicide vest on, it's not going to matter that the dog on the other side of the room looking for a device, right? So it's kind of outside their wheelhouse um, with both suicide IEDs and, and then the vehicle-borne IEDs, again, because they're kind of offensive weapons is maybe the way to describe that. But if we're looking on the defensive side, there's going to be some changes in tactics as, as the war progresses. And in no particular order, again, we're talking about kind of a cat and mouse game. What works, what doesn't, and how can we counter it, and then things change. One of the ways originally, kind of the easiest way, was there would be a wire that ran from somebody with a detonator out to the IED, let's say, in the middle of the road. And they waited for somebody to walk over it or a vehicle to drive over it, and they would click the device, and it would um, detonate the IED. So um, the downside there for the enemy, and the reason they have to move away from this eventually, to a degree, is there's a wire linking that person to the explosion. So somebody has to be watching the kill zone and has to be holding a detonator. It's easy to catch that person or easier to catch that person than in other instances we're going to see down the road. It gives the Americans something to look for. We can look for wires sticking out of the ground. That's a, a telltale sign of something, right? Um, might even come up with technologies to kind of help to, to identify that type of, that type of material. We would also see things that could be detonated with um, radios or phones. And again, there's pros and cons from the enemy perspective, and you can see how this adapted. You know, you can maybe be further away. You can be holding, the, the person detonating the device can be holding a phone. That's a lot less suspicious than a, a detonator at the end of a wire. So they could be standing anywhere nearby as they watch for Americans to roll over this device and just call a number. There might be another cell phone attached to the device. And when the um, call came in, it would, it would detonate. There's some risk there from the enemy's point of view, you know, cell phone batteries die. Um, there's not perfect reception everywhere. And you're kind of, you're starting to talk about a little more complex system now when you're, when you're tying in a, uh, a phone that has to receive a call and then trigger a device, right? There's a lot of things that can go wrong there. Again, when you compare it to you know, a detonator at the end of a wire. So a little more complex, but also some advantages for the enemy. So they certainly use those. Of course, something the United States and allies around the world started utilizing in large capacity in some of these conflicts were jamming devices where um, calls couldn't come and go based off of the location of, I mean, physically carrying jamming devices. So technically, if you're standing on top of a cell phone and a call tries to come in, that cell phone has no service, can't receive the call. Now, they continued the evolution, right? Again, the cat and mouse game is the way is the way to look at this. And where we we never really went away from this last form of IED, but it ended up being one of the more efficient uses on the battlefield and has been used for a long time now. It's for a couple of reasons. 
the pressure plate IED is essentially an improvised mine. It is detonated when somebody steps on the pressure plate, connects a circuit, and the, the device detonates. Based off of that spring, if you will, for the, uh, for the mine, you, it might be set specifically to where a child could run over it. Maybe even a grown man could walk over it. But an American with body armor and ammunition and water and carrying a radio that you know is weighing 250 pounds might be enough to trigger it. So it's not it's not dumb. It's not like an old mine that you just put out there and could detonate when anybody steps over it. It's risky, of course, right? I mean, how how much do you want to risk that uh, maybe you're under the weight threshold for that that homemade mine you're looking at? Um, but you could also attach and detach a power source pretty easily. You could remove a battery and have it set out to the side with a wire. So if you wanted to, I mean, think of it like setting your alarm system at night. You could walk out, attach a few like D cell batteries, small batteries, and bam, your IED, your IEDs are turned on now. Without that battery, you can walk over it all you want, ride bikes over it, drive cars over it, no issue. So we started to see a lot of these in both the conflicts, pressure plate IEDs, they were inexpensive, right? You don't have to have a cell phone on each one. There's no battery, cell phone battery that's going to die over time. Um, they're going to be made out of plastic. So mine detectors aren't going to pick them up. Um, jammers won't work because it's, it's all contained within this small device. You might not be able to see any wires. If the, you know, there's an option to have a battery sitting on the outside, maybe that battery's inside underground. There's nothing to see. It's, um, it was effective. It was very, very effective in a lot of places around Iraq and Afghanistan. And we've gotten to the point now in this IED war within the larger conflict where American soldiers and Marines are carrying on, on any given patrol, right? We, we, again, we're trying to win the local support. We're trying to get to the point where somebody will say, don't put that IED in the ground at all. Well, to get there, we have to go interact with the locals, of course, right? You can't do it from your base. You can't even do it from a up-armored, mine-protected vehicle. There was some great innovation in the military with vehicles that could could take a serious blast in these wars. And that's great survivability, and a lot of lives were saved because of that. But being in those vehicles doesn't allow you to get out and talk with the people. So at some point, you got to be on, your, on the ground trying to reduce the overall threat, right? And when you're on the ground, now you have to deal with all these counter-IED measures. You've got people carrying metal detectors and ground penetrating radars and, 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 um, jammers. And like, you, you can only carry so much gear and you can only go so fast when every single step you take might have an IED under it. The, the density of IEDs in some portions, especially Afghanistan in the Southern portions of Afghanistan, the density, density was insane. Like a hundred meter stretch of road could have 30. And that's not an exaggeration. I mean, wild numbers of IEDs that were just everywhere and, and they could be left for long periods of time. It's not like there's some master map that the enemy would keep and say, here's the, the 274 IEDs we've laid around the battlefield. Oftentimes people would come in, lay a few IEDs and move on, or maybe that fighter gets killed or it's it. What comes to mind for me is the idea of a squirrel burying a nut for the next year. They, they bury so many of them. They remember where some are, don't remember where others are. I mean, it's, with the IED becoming so expensive, so easy to make to a degree and being so effective, it's it's almost in certain areas just, you got one, 
put it out there somewhere. You never know. Somebody might step on it. So finding these, so interacting with the local population became a challenge because we're, we're having to literally use technology before every single step we take. It's, it's restrictive and you can see how it doesn't take long. And all of a sudden the Americans are pretty tied to their bases and, and the the Taliban in Afghanistan, especially start to retake control and sway over the population. So we got to get out there. We still have to get out there and try to, to win the support. And we start to utilize more and more dogs. And the reason for that, as we're looking through all these different ways that IEDs can be laid and detonated and the challenges we're having to figure out how we're going to defeat this, dogs can smell, can be trained to smell the explosive, detect that explosive. And if we're talking about pressure plate IEDs, they usually aren't going to be heavy enough to, 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 um, set those off. Not always, but, um, certainly way less than, than a person. And when you're looking out at a path and you're trying to cover it with mine detectors and radars and keep security and still don't know what you're going to miss. And, and then you have a dog that can run back and forth ahead of you smelling for IEDs. And when he finds one, he or she finds one, sits down, marks it, notifies the owner. And you can approach that site carefully, deliberately, destroy the ID and move on. It's this, it's a couple things. It, it's an added tool to the military unit, an incredible tool that, that is unmatched. I mean, there's no other piece of equipment that, that I don't know if you've ever used a metal detector, but you can, maybe I'm just not very good with metal detectors, but you can go out there and use them. And sometimes they work like a charm and other times it, it it's on. It just doesn't seem to be doing the trick. How much do you want to rely on that technology and make sure you've got it figured out and dialed in just right when your life is on the line? Well, that's not the case with dogs, right? They're, they're out there. They're looking for these IEDs. You don't have to worry about if they're on or off. Of course, some are better than others and some are experts like Luca. We're going to talk about her. Others are new and they've got some learning to do, but I'll say from personal experience, there is a, a sense of calm about you when there's a dog running in front of your patrol. It just makes you feel like they're looking out for you. They, their only job out there is to find the things that could kill you or your friends. The only thing that or you know, the most devastating weapon on the battlefield and that dog like Luca is running ahead of you to find that threat and let you know. And they're incredibly effective. But it takes a while to train these dogs. We can't just, you know, there, there's a lot of training that goes into them. There's only certain types of dogs that that fit the role well. And how many are you going to need to, what if every squad in the military wants one in Iraq and Afghanistan? What about every platoon, every company? I mean, it, it's a lot of dogs to ask. And then those dogs have handlers that they work with. And it's a very, very, very good tool. Um, but just like anything that can affect the outcome of a conflict in one way or another, it's always in, always in short supply. Luca was one of those dogs. Luca was born in the Netherlands. She was trained by the Israeli Defense Force, which is not uncommon, and started serving with the United States Marine Corps in 2006. Luca deployed twice to Iraq. And then in 2012, deployed again to Afghanistan. Now, before we dive into kind of the high level story of Luca, it's worth saying that there's a book written about her and about military working dogs in general. So if, if you want to get a lot more detail and really dive into this story specifically, check out Top Dog. Um, Top Dog, the story of Marine hero Luca. Um, that is going to dive into a lot more depth with a lot more detail than we'll hit here. But nonetheless, 
Luca is in Afghanistan in 2012. And while she's on patrol in Afghanistan, she identifies a 30-pound IED. So we'll call that right in the mid-range IED. Pretty devastating. That would that would kill a Marine, kill a soldier that stepped on it, pretty certainly. Um, she finds it, notifies her handler. And usually the way that's done is maybe sitting down right there. You've seen dogs that are out looking for things, and when they find it, they sit, right? Um, usually that's the case. So Luca notifies her handler and um, they mark the ID, get, get ready to, uh, to work on it. You don't just, when you find these IDs, it's not like you just say, there's one, put a flag on it and move on. You destroy it, you get rid of it, dismantle it, detonate it, something. So it's just off the battlefield. As they're starting that process, Luca starts um, looking for secondary devices. Now, a couple notes here. There's a few different types of ways that dogs can be utilized in this capacity. One is on leash. And it is when a dog is on leash, right? It's it's a very, um, the handler is right there, kind of directing where the dog is searching. Very effective. Um, especially kind of at like a, uh, you know, we have to look down this trail. We have to look at the, in this ravine. Then there's other dogs that operate off leash. And that's what Luca did. Off leash means that she was able to kind of roam. And what comes to mind for me kind of hunting dogs, bird dogs. They go out a certain distance and kind of run back and forth and they know to kind of stay within a certain range. Luca operates off leash, which means that she is out front of American lines, out front of the Marine lines in this case, um, by herself, running back and forth, sniffing all around, looking for those IEDs well ahead of when the Marines get there. I mean, we're not talking a mile out, you know, 50 yards, 100 yards, that kind of distance, um, a lot of times less. So she identifies an IED and begins her secondary search. And the reason for that is we were talking about how inexpensive these are, these IEDs are to lay. So, you know, right at the beginning of the war, you might find one big IED. As we got later into the conflict, especially here in 2012 in Afghanistan, it wasn't uncommon to find one IED and then three, four, five, six in the immediate vicinity. The idea, um, well, there's a lot of ideas there, a lot of strategies. After you find an ID, you let your guard down because you found it. Um, people start moving around a little bit to um, to dismantle it. Or if that initial ID um, kills or wounds somebody, there's a little bit of chaos on the scene as medics come in, as medevacs come in, um, as soldiers and Marines come in to try to save their brothers. And there's three, four or five other IEDs that haven't been spotted yet. Um it's, it's war. It's a nasty, it's a nasty tactic. Um, but you can see why it's utilized, right? Nonetheless, Luca is looking for secondary devices and she steps on one. Um, I don't know how big that device was. Um, cloud of, cloud of dust goes up, smoke goes up, um, loud bang like a lot of these plastic IEDs did. It wasn't a giant fireball shooting in the air. It was a, a, you know, kind of a cloud of dust. Um, and after it settles, her handler, Corporal um, Juan Rodriguez, Marine Corporal Juan Rodriguez, looks over and Luca is on the ground alive, trying to crawl to him for help. She's wounded. She's pretty seriously wounded. Now, Luca's cleared some areas, but now that you're finding an IED, what do we just talk about? There's a possibility for secondary and, and a third and a fourth and a fifth. 
Rodriguez can't just sprint over there, but what he can do is move through the path that Luca had cleared, a thin path, narrow trail. He moves through the path that Luca had cleared for the other Marines, gets to her side, applies a tourniquet, calls a medevac, and as the medevac lands, he gets her out of there alive. Rodriguez would stay by Luca's side through, they got her back to the hospital, into surgery. Um, Rodriguez was by her side the whole time. He was her handler. Um, her handler in this um, Afghanistan deployment, she had another handler um, in Iraq. We'll, we'll come back to that in a minute. Um, Lucas survived. She survived surgery, had one of her front legs amputated. But, uh, but 10 days after the blast, was walking again. It's crazy. <laughs> um, I, I, know it's, I know it's not a, a one-to-one comparison, but the thought of, uh, yeah, it's hard to figure that out, to go, uh, to lose a leg and, and, and be back, back up and going a short time later. Without that leg, Luca um, wouldn't be able to serve in the same capacity that she was needed in the military and that she was trained for. So she was retired in 2012. And at that time, her original handler, um, gunnery sergeant Chris um, Willingham, I believe is his name, was her original handler um, when she joined the Marine Corps. He adopted her. Um, and a few years later, I think it was 2015, 2015 or 2000, 2016, excuse me, Luca was awarded the Dickin Medal. The Dickin Medal is a British award given to service animals during wartime. And it's the equivalent, said to be the equivalent of the Victoria Cross, which is the highest uh, award for valor in the British military. I was looking back through the recipients of the Dickin Medal. There's not, there's not a lot. Um, it was unique. I don't want to say it's the only one because I'm kind of hard to dig through some of this research. It was unique for that award to be given to an American dog. There were other cases or a dog working almost exclusively with Americans. There were other cases where American dogs received it working jointly with the British. And I imagine there was some time, um, plenty of overlap here. The British spent a lot of time in, in Southwest Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, but anyways, awarded the Dickin Medal. And the reason for that is that in over 400 missions that Luca ran point on, 400 missions between Iraq and Afghanistan, not a single American service member lost their life. That is why dogs are valuable on the battlefield. That is why there's a book written about Luca. That is why you see people get so excited about the work these dogs are doing. It is safe to say that there are hundreds, if not thousands of American service members that are alive today because of dogs in general. But Luca by herself absolutely accounts for a handful of lives that would have been lost throughout Iraq and Afghanistan if she hadn't been running point and finding those IEDs before they became a threat to the dismounted or mounted patrols. So we'll wrap that up with Luca. The uh, military working dog spent 2006 to 2012 in the Marine Corps. Again, if you want to hear more about her story, check out the book Top Dog, the story of a Marine of Marine hero, Luca. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. 
you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.